America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Middle East and the archipelago kingdom of Bahrain, a U.S. security partner and the longtime headquarters of the U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet. Our guest, His Excellency Sheikh Abdullah bin Rashid Al Khalifa, is the Bahraini ambassador to the United States. A member of the Al Khalifa family and son of the Bahraini interior minister, Sheikh Abdullah began his career as the head of educational affairs of the Royal Family Council. He later served as Director of Education and the Social Affairs Directorate. In 2010, Bahraini King Hamad bin Isa Al Khalifa appointed Sheikh Abdullah to be Governor of Bahrain's Southern Directorate, the largest of Bahrain's four directorates. Sheikh Abdullah became Ambassador to the United States in July of 2017, a post in which he continues to promote security cooperation and economic exchange between the U.S. and Bahrain. Humans have inhabited the small island kingdom of Bahrain, which means two seas, for thousands of years. Bahrain has served as a trade hub, linking civilizations from Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley to the Phoenicians and the Levant, to the Nile Valley and Egypt. Persian dynasties ruled Bahrain under the Iranian Achaemenid dynasty from the 6th to the 3rd centuries BC and from the 3rd to the 7th centuries AD. Arab armies established an Islamic empire in the Middle East in the 7th and 8th centuries. Persian, Omani, and Portuguese forces later seized control of the islands of Bahrain. In 1783, Ahmed al Fata led the Bani Atba tribe to win Bahrain from Persia and instituted the Al Khalifa family's rule. In 1830 and 1861, the British government signed treaties with Bahrain, and Bahrain functioned as a British protectorate. Bahrain was the first Gulf country to discover oil, and the Bahrain Petroleum Company marshaled the country into an era of major oil and gas production and economic industrialization. In the late 1960s, Britain reduced its presence in the Gulf, and Bahrain, along with other Persian Gulf Emirates, sought sovereignty. Following the unanimous passing of UN Resolution 278, Bahrain became independent on December 16, 1971. Bahrain finalized the first of two constitutions in 1973, during the reign of Sheikh Isa bin Salman al-Khalifa from 1961 until his death in 1999. Bahrain joined global and regional coalitions, including the UN, the IMF, the WHO, and the Gulf Cooperation Council. Bahrain participated in Operation Desert Storm in Iraq as a member of the coalition and signed a defense cooperation agreement with the United States. His Majesty King Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa came to power in 1999 and ushered Bahrain into an era of reform. In 2002, Bahrain amended the constitution to become a constitutional monarchy and held its first local and parliamentary elections in three decades. That same year, 
the U.S. designated Bahrain a major non-NATO ally. In 2011, the Arab Spring protests shook the Middle East and catalyzed anti-government uprisings and armed rebellions throughout the region. The protests spread to Bahrain, but the Al Khalifa family remained in power. Bahrain is a vital U.S. defense, security, and trade partner and is working to diversify its economy away from oil. We welcome Sheikh Abdullah to discuss security partnerships, Bahrain's outlook on regional security, and the impacts of shifting alliances throughout the Middle East. Ambassador Abdullah Al Khalifa, Marhaba. I've enjoyed the hospitality of you and your family many times, and it's a privilege to welcome you to Battlegrounds. No, thank you so much. This is a, a great opportunity. I applaud you for what you continue to do, General, and uh, I welcome the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ambassador. You know, you're from a small but very important country <laughs> in, in a perfect position uh, to help us learn more about the Middle East and, and, and the Gulf region. And of course, every year you host the Manama Dialogue, which is a, a forum that brings people together with differing viewpoints. And I've always been impressed at the at the Manama dialogue that that we really have a vibrant discussion. So I'd like to ask you to just, just to begin, could you talk with our viewers about you know, what were the, the the most significant issues raised this year, but really also what are do you think are the most pressing issues for for Bahrain uh, and the region more broadly? Uh, absolutely, General. If uh, you'll allow me just to give a, a very quick overview as to the uh, Bahrain U.S. relationship, because I think it's worth noting that. This relationship is a very deep, historic relationship. It's been steady uh, for a very long time now. Last year, we celebrated 50 years of formal relations, but informally, it goes back a century. People-to-people uh, -people ties started out, uh, and it evolved into not the obvious defense security relationship that a lot of people presume it to be, but a truly multifaceted relationship that has touched the lives of many people on both sides. So um, we've always focused on, yes, the defense and the security, but the economic ties, the cultural ties, the diplomatic cooperation, all the work that happens quietly between our two countries to ensure the safety and the security of our people um, has really forged a great example of partnership between our two nations. Um, I'm talking about a country that has pegged its currency to the U.S. dollar, a country that has prioritized its um, business dealings with the U.S. as opposed to other, other nations from around the world. Um, we've aligned our military uh, capabilities with the U.S. We have housed the uh, U.S. naval facilities since 1947, and all of that really brought our people closer uh, and presented really unique opportunities that uh, have benefited us all. Um, but regarding the Minama Dialogue, yeah, I was there uh, a week ago, and uh, it was really interesting to see that many of the participants talked about security, but in a broader context. So there were the obvious concerns, the obvious challenges, but also there were issues that governments are facing around the world, especially in light of uh, what we faced two years ago with COVID, what we're facing um, up until now with supply chain issues, uh, wars and other theaters that are making 
raw materials uh, difficult to obtain uh, and having an effect on, on our very complicated lives uh, these days. But uh, the, the conversation was um, uh, very wide uh, in terms of its, uh, in terms of what we heard, but I would say the resounding probably message that we heard in terms of security and defense was related to a neighbor of us, which shouldn't come as a surprise. Iran has always been uh, part of the conversation at the IISS conferences in Bahrain, uh, but this time uh, we've heard it louder from our European partners as opposed to just countries in the region. Uh, there's a, a significant concern with uh, the recent uh, behavior of Iran in the region and it, the unpredictability. And just for our viewers, of course, you're talking about the murder of Masamini and then the, the murder of over 400 protesters now, uh, as as people have expressed their outrage at at the brutality of the theocratic dictatorship there. But please continue, Ambassador. No, absolutely. I mean. Um, you know, for those that look back historically at um, what Bahrain has uh, encountered because of uh, Iran's intervention in the domestic affairs of Bahrain, um, it's been uh, very challenging. We have a very unique demographic in Bahrain. Uh, we have people from different ethnic backgrounds, from different religions. It's a very open society. And it goes against every rule that the Islamic Republic wants to see in a country that neighbors them. And that has been a point um, that has created a lot of uh, friction, uh, but we have been able to deal with it over a period of time. Uh, we've been able to double down on our efforts in, in inclusion and in peaceful coexistence and tolerance, uh, and that has uh, aggravated the regime and it puts us in a, in a very uh, difficult situation. And Ambassador, you're talking about this already, but I think our viewers will be interested in in, in really you know what what the king has done, uh, what you know what what re governmental reforms have been put in place to encourage the participation you're alluding to, and 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 how you feel now about uh, about the inclusion of of all different communities uh, in government and. And the internal security situation after having gone through some difficult times in in recent years. Well, here's the thing, uh, General. You know, um, we will continue to advocate for uh, the participation of everyone in the political process. We just had uh, elections two weeks ago, and we had a 73% voter turnout. Um, there are those that were represented from uh, different backgrounds, different faiths. Uh, and there is a true belief in the political uh, reform system that was developed since 2002. Um, that is going to continue with uh, a lot of momentum. And as it continues, we will always see those that will try to slow it down. Now, uh, for the past 40 years, again, because demographic, we're talking about the 1.5 million uh, population, half of whom are Bahraini, the other half are uh, from all over the world. Um, we want to ensure that we continue to have a very open and dynamic community, one that is 
very similar to communities uh, in the West, uh, very open-minded, very forward-thinking, and with the objective of creating the highest quality of life for our, our um, citizens and those that choose to live in Bahrain. Um, Iran sees this diversity as an opportunity to foment um, sectarian divide. Now, we never look at the percentages because of a single fact, Bahraini first. There are a lot of homes with um, parents coming from different sects. And so where do you classify the kids, right? Um, I, I think that as we move forward, we will continue to see uh, Iran challenge uh, what we're trying to do. But at the end of the day, we're probably the only country that has pushed back this hard. We're only the only country that has uh, succeeded in doing so. And uh, we have a success story to highlight. And that's what we're doing here in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. Ambassador, I'm sure this was a topic of discussion at Manama. Could you maybe uh, share with our viewers your perspective of the region more broadly as it relates to Iran's effort to, I think, to, to, to accelerate a cycle of sectarian violence that allows Iran to, to, uh, to try to keep the Arab world perpetually weak. And, and the weakness among its Arab neighbors is what Iran wants, obviously, to extend its influence in the region and ultimately as well to threaten Israel, you know, as, as part of that effort to weaken uh, Arab states. So how do you see the trends in the region, in Iraq, where I've spent a lot of time, as you know, uh, and, and I have, you know, I, I've got a soft spot in my heart for Iraqis who have been subjected to brutal brutality and violence from, you know, takfirin, um, uh, Salafi jihadists, uh, as, as well as, as uh, Shia uh, militias and terrorist groups supported by Iran. Uh, and then in Yemen, uh, we see Iran's support for the Houthis and the perpetuation of that humanitarian catastrophe there. The, the continued episodes of mass homicide in the, in the Syrian civil war, uh, per, uh, perpetrated in large measure by an Iranian proxy army, the support for Hezbollah and Hamas and the threats to Israel. I mean, so Iran is playing clearly a destructive role in, in the region. How do you see the trends in this fitness that they've been able to participate in in, in perpetuating? Uh, and and uh, what's your prediction about the future? Well. I first think that the Iranian regime has tried the exact same formula in um, multiple um, parts of the Middle East. They have uh, succeeded in some, uh, and it has been challenging for them in others. But the resounding um, uh, fact is that we've started to uncover this formula. We've started to realize how they operate. And we've started to put it in front of the eyes of many around the world. Uh, creating a government within a government has always been an objective. Um, if you have a strong government that looks out for the security interests of all people, for the benefit of all people within a country, that doesn't play well. Uh, and that's what we try to do. That's what we continue to do. Uh, and it becomes more and more challenging for them. Now, um, sect has, a, has a, a role in this, but then again, we shouldn't uh, look at the entire sect 
as uh, followers of the Iranian regime, because that's also a misconception sometimes that we have here in the West. There are some loud voices on the extremes that might um, give the impression that there's bigger control over this. And when I talk about the extreme, I talk about the extreme on, on multiple fronts. So it's not just one sect, but all sects, all religions. If extremism becomes uh, our enemy that we will time and again focus on uh, and deter, then we're in a better uh, standing. And that's what we have done. So um, as we continue down the path of, uh, of openness, of, of inclusion, uh, it becomes more and more evident for our people that they have got to be uh, somewhere in the middle as opposed to on the extremes. Uh, and, and that has, has really worked. Um, now, Iran's uh, actions towards Bahrain, especially in the past few decades, has, have really been unpredictable. We never know what might come next. And what we have seen is whenever there's a bigger challenge domestically in Iran, we'll see a spillover effect in the region as a diversion. That diversion, we worry, might have a direct effect on us. So what we're doing right now is we're, we're monitoring the situation in Iran, and we're looking at how they might, how it might affect us, basically. How can we uh, maintain our guard uh, as uh, things get uh, a little bit more complicated on their domestic front. And as you know, security in the region does require a lot of multilateral cooperation. And, and as you know, for many years, the, the, the United States had great hopes for the, the Gulf Coordinating Council, the GCC, and uh, especially in the, in the security realm. How are the trends in the GCC today? Of course, I remember when I was National Security Advisor, we had the, the so-called Gulf Crisis between uh, between really the United Arab Emirates and, and the Saudis on on one side and the Qataris on the other, and and countries like yours trying to trying to mediate, Kuwait trying to mediate. Uh, how's how's the relationship today? And 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 uh, how is the relationship uh, doing in connection with uh, with security cooperation? Well, uh, for the past uh, year or so, we have seen um, much more cooperation on the GCC level. Uh, it is our hope that we continue down that path of coordination, uh, because that's the whole essence of the GCC. Uh, you know, I think COVID really taught us a lesson. Um, it taught us how vulnerable uh, we are if we stand alone. Um, we need to depend on one another, but then we also have to be uh, very selective in who we choose as partners. And the more like-minded countries come together, uh, the easier they will uh, achieve their goals. And so within the GCC, um, we're hoping uh, to get over this hurdle very soon uh, as we move forward to a more challenging time. Uh, oil is not going to be the driver of energy for long. And so the diversification away from oil has already started. And without the collaborative efforts of the GCC, uh, it's just going to be another uh, challenge that we will have to overcome. So uh, we're in a different state. We're um, 
um, talking on a on a technical level we're talking on the leadership level um, but the landscape in the Middle East has also changed uh, dramatically in the past two years these geopolitical shifts uh, are creating uh, maybe differences in in foreign policies towards some countries in the region and outside of the region and that creates another level of uh, complication that we'll have to very delicately deal with well, Ambassador, one of, one of the most significant uh, developments in recent years has been the Abraham Accords, and I guess, I guess even negative experiences like like Iran's proxy wars that they've been fomenting in the region can have positive consequences. Because I think one of the big drivers of this was, I, I think, a, a really strong vision by the Trump administration to to help broker this agreement. But really, the realization uh, among countries in the region that they have to work together to counter the, really the the threat from from Iran. Could you comment really on Bahrain's role uh, in the Abraham Accords, your observations as it was coming together, and what you think the prospects are uh, for, for cooperation under the Abraham Accords? So, General, we're, we're two years in. Um, we have over 40 different MOUs that were signed thus far. Um, we have uh, an ambassador in Tel Aviv. We have uh, uh, an Israeli ambassador in Bahrain. Uh, the idea here is to primarily target economic prosperity and to, to come up with a future that is more sustainable for both our peoples. And so with direct flights uh, twice a week, we have already witnessed a surge in Israeli tourism. I mean, they come to Bahrain uh, not only for sporting events, but to visit uh, the only operating synagogue in the region. It's been there for uh, over five decades now. Um, they come to Bahrain to interact with uh, the Jewish Bahrainis that have uh, lived in Bahrain for many years, that have been part of uh, the government for many years, that have represented Bahrain abroad uh, in a number of instances. And for us, it was important to build that bilateral relationship as we move forward. But what happened in the beginning of this year was also a focus on the multilateral efforts where the Negev Forum was uh, established. Um, this was done very quickly, but it brought together um, the Bahrainis, Americans, Israelis, UAE, uh, Morocco, uh, we're all part of the, the Accords, but then Egypt as well. So it just comes to show that uh, there's a genuine effort to uh, look at some of the challenges and come up with opportunities that will bring us closer together. I still remember on the sidelines of that forum, uh, we were able to launch what is called the Joint Warm Peace Strategy. And the idea behind it was to show that Yes, we understand that within the next couple of years, there might be some challenges ahead. But at the end of the day, we are in this for the long run. Uh, we want to find ways that we can bring our peoples closer together. So um, there were certain areas of mutual interest that we focused on, trade, healthcare, sustainable energy, uh, education, and tourism. And as a result of that, there were multiple working groups that were formed. Bahrain hosted the steering committee back in June, and those six working groups were formed. Clean energy, education, co education and uh, coexistence, 
food and water security, health, regional security, and tourism. Um, now, these working groups are, uh, are being established. Uh, it seems like Bahrain and the US are going to co-chair two of them, uh, but the idea here is to get everyone involved. Well, Ambassador, you, you mentioned- I, I maybe didn't mention uh, security and defense. And you know, usually that would be the first thing uh, to be mentioned uh, in, in such a, a working group capacity. But on the bilateral level, General, what I found was we signed the first defense agreement with the Israelis as an Arab state. And that really shifted the way in which Israelis um, interact with us uh, and others in the region. Uh, we had a, a visit by a uh, senior national security council uh, official. And in his visit to, uh, to uh, uh, the Fifth Fleet, uh, there was a, an Israeli counterpart that was there as well. Um, by signing that agreement, we have an IDF officer in Bahrain. Um, we have seen multiple uh, joint exercises in the region. And uh, we're hopeful that that will help us secure uh, the region in, in, a, in a different way that was not possible before the accords. You know, Ambassador, Americans a lot of times, because of the difficulties in, in the region, view the Middle East as just a mess to be avoided, right? And you often hear these arguments about you know, about pivoting away from the, from the Middle East or disengaging as an unmitigated good. But I think what you're talking about are some examples of, of how U.S. engagement in the region can play a productive role in, in, in helping countries in the region uh, go after their own problems and, and to exploit their own opportunities. And you mentioned a lot of these areas, uh, energy security as, as one of them. And of course, we've seen in, in the war in Ukraine, the brutal invasion of Ukraine, and I'm sure that has resonated quite strongly with Bahrain, a, a, a brutal invasion of a uh, of a smaller country in terms of population and so forth by uh, a much larger neighbor, and and the effects that it's had uh, really on energy security, on food security, um, and and so problems that develop in the Middle East or you know in the Black Sea region you know, don't stay there, right? They reverberate, and and I wonder if you might share with uh, you know with with our viewers, you know. Why it's important uh, for the what, what? What do you see as the U.S. role uh, as, as a partner of Bahrain, uh, but also uh, in, in the Middle East more broadly? Well, General, I think that this is um, much bigger than just security. I mean, uh, we all understand the significance of the U.S. presence in the region and its direct effect on um, uh, securing energy prices. Uh, global energy prices. And what we've seen over time is that with the formation of multiple coalitions, there's a bigger uh, sharing of that burden, uh, which is, which is uh, an opportunity for us to work with like-minded countries to protect the region and to protect uh, the world, basically. You have someone that goes out, fills up his uh, tank of gas, and uh, because of some uh, drone attacks in the Arabian Gulf, you might have, uh, I, I mean, uh, a, a different price to pay. So it's still, I think, is a, is a very important region in terms of that. But also, 
it's important for the U.S. to continue because we have seen the effects on our peoples. I mean, the next generation that are growing up now, uh, they've been educated here in the U.S. They have uh, ties with folks here in the U.S. Um, the business community has ties with uh, folks in the U.S. And so uh, this all comes together and it it presents itself with uh, with an opportunity for for peoples to to grow closer together and the danger is any pivot out of the region is going to create a void and that void is going to be filled with uh, others that might look at the region with uh, with an opportunistic view um, but um, yeah, we've we've aligned ourselves a very long time ago, and and we hope to see a continuation in it. So, um, what we will do is we will continue to come up with innovative ideas to make things work. Uh, whether it's in the private sector, where not only have we signed this uh, free trade agreement back in two thousand and four, um, but we've also dedicated a plot of land for US businesses only to set up shop and make it easier for them to uh, sell their products and manufacture their products in, in the region. Um, we only have one free trade zone and it's dedicated for US businesses only. These initiatives that give US companies or US, US entities a competitive edge over others um, should should really be highlighted, and and this becomes part of a part of this relationship that we have built for many years. Um, Ambassador, of course, your your country in the Middle East remains very important uh, in terms of energy security. You've already mentioned this, and you mentioned obviously the the, the focus on a, on a on a clean energy transition. But it's worth pointing out that that uh, global energy demands will will increase by fifty percent by the year twenty fifty. And the estimates are that only about 28% of that increased demand can be covered by renewables. So, so natural gas and oil exports are going to remain very important. And I'd like just to, to ask, you know, really what your vision is, Bahrain's vision, in terms of investments in, in, in energy infrastructure to meet that demand in the long term, but also in the short term. Do you see Bahrain and you know, OPEC broadly uh, doing more to meet the increased demand for energy, especially in light of the crisis in Ukraine and the, the degree to which that's constrained global energy supplies? Uh, you know, ever since um, the war in Ukraine, we've, we've realized how important energy security is. And um, that was probably when I earlier talked about the dimensions of security. That was one of the areas that We've organized the IISS uh, Manama Dialogue for 18 years now, and we have never heard the, the, the context of uh, energy security um, the way we did this year. So it's, it's uh, very evident that uh, countries that look for stability uh, are looking at ways in which they can um, maximize their relations with countries that they can depend on in terms of securing those energy uh, requirements. And uh, it continues to showcase how important the Middle East is. So uh, what we have done is through the leadership of uh, His Royal Highness the Crown Prince, 
who has uh, been keen on participating in COP27, COP26. Uh, we've announced our goals and we will continue um, to seek those goals that have been embedded into our economic vision 2030. Um, that will require us to do two things in parallel. Uh, we have to look at ways in which we can um, maximize the raw materials that we are blessed to have either on or offshore uh, in terms of oil and gas. Um, as an ambassador here in Washington, D.C., my priority is to get U.S. companies involved as soon as possible. Uh, we know that the technology lies here in the U.S., and so we're trying our best to, uh, uh, to get those investments up and running. But at the same time, we look at our announced commitments and we look at ways in which our government can get to those goals the same way many of the other governments are doing in terms of carbon capture technology and other ways uh, as well. So um, we'll do those two things in parallel and uh, we'll continue to, uh, uh, to work with like-minded countries to, to get to those goals. Ambassador, the last question I'd like to ask you, you've already alluded to it. You, you said that if, if the United States disengages from the Middle East and creates a vacuum, somebody will fill it. I think that's so, those somebodies uh, include Russia. And, and of course, it's worth pointing out at this stage that Iran is supporting Russia's brutal war in Ukraine with the sale of drones and maybe even missiles and, and uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard's core expertise in assembling and employing those drones. And China, China, who is, who is actually thrown a lifeline uh, to, to the Iranian regime multiple times in terms of purchasing uh, oil exports beyond, uh, the, beyond the limit uh, associated with UN sanctions and so forth, and a lot of cooperation on missiles that, that I think is generally known. And, and so what are your concerns about Russia and China's role in the region? How have you seen it change over time? And 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 what's your prediction for the future for Chinese and Russian designs? What do they want in the region? And is their influence growing or, or is it diminished now after after the invasion of Ukraine? I think that um, all the countries in the region have uh, relations with both uh, China and Russia. Uh, we will continue to have those relations. Um, but at the same time, when we look a little bit deeper into the quality of, of the relations and compare them uh, with other relationships that we have built over time, um, we might see some discrepancies, we might see some differences. Uh, and so, uh, you know, for a country that has invested a lot in its relationship with the US, pivoting to uh, other relationships becomes uh, very expensive. Uh, and uh, and so um, we value the relationship with the U.S. Uh, we uh, will continue down that path um, while still maintaining uh, our relations with, uh, with other countries from around the world. Uh, but at the end of the day, we look at our national security interests and we look at uh, all what's happening uh, and with examples that might hurt our national security interests uh, will draw some red lines. So uh, we're very careful in, in, our, in our international relationships, and uh, uh, we're very cognizant of the fact that um, Bahraini security comes first, uh, and 
we double down on relations that have been built over a consistent amount of time uh, and uh, we've seen prosperity out of those relationships. Well, Ambassador, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us to help us understand better Bahrain's perspective. And I, we've shown in the intro the map. And I think when you look at the map and you see where Bahrain is situated, you're, there, there's no better vantage point than to look northeast, south, or west uh, to help us understand the, the region from an invaluable ally and, and from a, 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 a tremendous perspective. And, and this, the purpose of this series is to, to help generate strategic empathy, to view complex challenges and opportunities from the perspective of others. And you've certainly fulfilled that for us. And I'd like just to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to say to our viewers before, before we wrap up here? Uh, again, General, thank you for the opportunity. I think that uh, maybe on a final note, um, I'd like to leave off on this idea. You know, we have when we look at countries in the region, we look at countries that know the US. And when I say they know the US, I don't mean language, I, know, I mean culture. Uh, because at the end of the day, that's what brings people together. If, if we understand one another better, uh, we'll get to better terms, uh, we'll get to better outcomes. And that has really helped us over time. That has helped us create a very stable foreign policy towards the US that has made the lives of all the ambassadors that were posted to, um, to the US from Bahrain much, much easier because of that alignment. And so uh, at a time when governments around the world are reshifting their priorities, they're looking at ways to build new relations or, or uh, invest more in old relationships, uh, you see some success stories and you need to highlight those success stories and build upon them uh, for the benefit of all. Uh, and I think we've proven uh, that point and uh, we're, we're very happy and grateful uh, for this very long and rich relationship. Well, Ambassador Abdullah Khalifa, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, Shukran, thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to our, our future, to our, to our security and to our prosperity. It's been great to see you again, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity, General. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.